Hey, really excited about this bonus episode I have for you all on For the Defense. This week, I interview 11th Circuit Judge Nancy Abudu. She's our newest 11th Circuit Judge. And as you'll hear from the interview, she's just such a wonderful, humble, nice person. Uh, it comes across right away. And I think you'll agree. And I hope you enjoy the interview of Judge Abudu, who's just terrific. Thanks. Okay, well, I'm really excited today. I have Judge Nancy Abudu here on the show, and um, she's our newest 11th Circuit judge, um, has been on the court now for um, about, what, Judge, six months now, a little bit more? Yes, seven months now. Well, that's just wonderful. Um, Let me give some background about the judge because she's terrific. She uh, went to Columbia uh, for undergrad and then Tulane Law School. Uh, then worked at Skadden Arps, a big New York law firm. And um, then interestingly, I saw you were a staff attorney on the 11th Circuit. So you had some experience with these uh, with your colleagues before becoming a judge on the court. Um, then worked at the ACLU, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and President Biden nominated her uh, back in 2001. And she was confirmed as the first African-American woman to sit on the 11th Circuit. And just so excited to have you, Judge. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So let me start with this because it's it's interesting. So many of our um, judges on the 11th Circuit were either judges on the district court or magistrate judges, and, and we sort of knew them before they um, went on to the 11th Circuit. Many of us don't, don't know you all that well, so tell us a little about yourself and your background. Sure. Well, let's see. What can I add to the resume you just provided? <laughs> yeah. Um, born and raised in Alexandria, Virginia. My parents are from Ghana, or my, my father was from Ghana. Came here, like many folks, to take advantage of the excellent American education system at the time. And um, really just grew up in the D.C. area, having kind of more of my feet in the American experience and world, but definitely exposure to West African culture in particular and the immigrant experience. Um, the, the D.C. area is just full of lawyers. I mean, I, I lived in D.C. for a while and it's it's a it's a town of 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 lawyers. How do you like the D.C. area? So I left the D.C. area to go to college and never yeah. lived again in <laughs> the D.C. area. So I right. Uh, you know, the political culture and, like you said, the saturation, some might call, of uh, when it comes to the legal profession and community. And where do you call home now? Atlanta. That's where I've been since 20, 2001. Um, spent some time practicing in Florida for a few years, but came back here because it is my home. I love Atlanta. I went to Emory for undergrad, so I spent some time there and, and uh, you know, get up there every now and then. It's such a great, great city. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was there at Emory when the Braves uh, went from last to first. So I've always been sort of a Braves fan uh, and try to try to still root for them a little bit, although they're not as good as they used to be. Yeah, I used to go to a lot of games when you could get a ticket for $10. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, when the stadium was empty. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I saw, I read online in preparing for this interview that you uh, enjoyed watching Matlock as a kid. So, so tell me about that because that that's a show that probably a lot of your clerks probably don't even know what Matlock is. I know, and going back through 
you know, the recesses of my memory, just, you know, remembering that what an impact that show had. And you don't realize, especially when you're young, the impact that certain types of exposure. And for me, that show, for some reason, I don't know if it was the, you know, uh, the seersucker suit that he <laughs> always wore or just kind of his folksy way, um, but always somehow maneuvering in terms of his strategy. And for the most part, I think he was usually successful on the show. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, everybody sort of needs an inspiration, I think, to when they become a lawyer, Sounds like that was a big part of your inspiration, that that t television show, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, and I don't even know necessarily um, inspiration, but really just exposure, you right. know, just exposure to that work. Sure. And and so when you did start out, I mean, working at a big New York law firm is is very different than some of the other work you did. I mean, Scat and Arps is one of the big monster New York firms. Tell us about your experience there. Did you like working at the firm or it really wasn't for you? I worked at a law firm in DC and it wasn't as much as I liked the people. It wasn't really for me. I wanted to be a public defender and, and do my thing. Yeah. I think again, kind of like the Matlock experience, it was exposure to a world within the legal profession that I hadn't had before um, and haven't really had since. Um, but yeah, I mean, the level of, well, let me start with the quality of the people. I know that there's sometimes a, a stereotype of what kind of people represent huge corporations. And I worked with some really good lawyers, um, you know, just the level of resources that a firm of that size has, not just nationally, but internationally, the range of work that they were doing. And, um, you know, being in New York City during that time, another community that's different from D.C. in a lot of ways, but to have kind of started my career in that community um, allowed me not to feel overwhelmed wherever I went after that. Interesting. And and then, you know, really changed course to go to the ACLU and Southern Poverty Law Center. And I saw you did a lot of, you know, Voting Rights Act stuff, death penalty work. Um, yeah, how, how did you like that work? Definitely eye-opening. You know, I never even took an election law class at Tulane. I had no idea that I was going to end up doing voting rights work. And then it would turn into what I think was, while I was still practicing, a specialty area. It could be very nuanced. It can be very complicated. It can be very expensive to litigate those kinds of cases. And so having that general exposure and then, you know, the last job I had before this one, really wanting to employ an integrated advocacy strategy. So getting a chance to work closely with, you know, people who worked on policy issues and then grassroots communities who were the ones on the ground and, and dealing with this, um, a lot of the issues we're dealing, we were addressing. Right. Really, really fascinating. And then of course, President Biden nominates you. Um, you. You know, your parents must have been just over the moon uh, proud and and what a great moment. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, the whole process. I'm still a bit uh, in a state of shock, honestly, <laughs> that I'm here. Sometimes when I drive up to the courthouse, I can't even believe that I have a parking space and people call me judge. Got to pinch yourself, right? 
Right. It is. It's true. But I just, you know, my respect for the bench and the role of the judiciary, of course, has increased exponentially. So, so cool and so amazing. Um, I will say I, I watched some of the confirmation hearings and, I, you know, I, I thought it was so contentious and and folks didn't treat you right. I mean, I guess it's part of the process now having to go through something like that. I One moment that stuck out to me is when Senator Cruz was talking about how his family came to the country with nothing. And you quickly responded about how your family did as well. And, and I saw him, it was just for a moment, like sort of pause and, and recognize, you know, wow, maybe maybe she isn't all that different. Uh, and, and of course he got back on track, but I thought it was a, a pretty cool moment um, with that exchange. Yeah, there were a lot of interesting moments <laughs> during that entire uh, hearing. And, you know, again, it just made me reflect on why, even though I was actively involved in political participation, I never consider and still don't consider myself a political person uh, because it can be so contentious, as you said. It really can be. I, I, I went to... Um high school at the same time down in South Florida with um, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. And I remember, you know, her confirmation process was also just so contentious. I mean, at, at one point, uh, you know, she had a tear in her. I mean, it was it was wild how how it, the, the confirmation process has really changed from where it was, you know, 20 years ago. Absolutely. And so kind of, you know, your first question about how this is my first time um, as a judge, as opposed to others who had already gone through one or two confirmation hearings, they even talked about how different the tone and the atmosphere um, had become. How do you how do you prepare for something like that? I mean, you know, we prepare for oral arguments, uh, but this is nothing like that. This this must have taken uh, all of your time and energy. It is. It's very intense. And it's a back to back process, um, you know, from the application to the selection to the hearing to the actual confirmation. And so I'm just grateful, honestly, for the judicial nomination team that President Biden put together that not only, you know, kept the commitment to appoint people with a diverse background, but then saw that commitment through and stuck with many of us who are now thankfully on the bench. Well, it's interesting you raise diversity because it's crazy to me, but diversity has become like a bad word now at recent. So, so, you know, should our courts focus on diversity and, and I'll ask diversity in two different ways. One is, you know, sort of the personal diversity um, and, and also professional diversity, having folks from different professional backgrounds. Should uh, are, are our courts better for having uh, both personal and professional diversity? Absolutely. Um, you know, in terms of the professional diversity, I hope that speaks for itself in terms of, you know, what people can offer, obviously, you know, from the criminal defense perspective, as opposed to being a prosecutor, you would hope that once people are on the bench, wherever they came from in terms of their practice, the, the, the approach to the law is the same. The interpretation and application might be different, but that is not always the case. We are human beings. And so when you have had a case 
where you know for sure there was uh, misconduct on the prosecutor side or the defense attorney side. When someone brings that in a direct appeal or habeas, you, you know, you don't dismiss it outright as a lie because it has happened. So that means it could happen. And then the joint job becomes making sure to the best of your ability that it didn't happen. And if it did, as you know, with the habeas context, that it didn't prejudice uh, the petitioner in any kind of serious way. And and so now that you're on the court as a first time judge, how how different is sort of your thinking through cases as a judge versus when you were in private practice? I mean, obviously much different roles to play, but how have you adjusted and, and sort of what is your uh, how different is it? Well, it's very different. I mean, the volume, number one, when you're practicing, the only case you fit, you care about is yours. <laughs> right. I get that. Um, but now I do have a better appreciation for why it sometimes takes long for decisions to come out. Um, the challenges that people have to wrestle with in terms of laws that you might not believe are, are fair, but it's the law. And that requires a certain level of discipline that I don't think you always have to have when you're an advocate, where your whole idea sometimes is to try to get a rejection of that precedent. Um, so I guess having being on this side of the bench now has made me more sensitive to some of those issues. Um, but I also think coming, being more recent from practice, I'm still sensitive to some of the procedural stuff. Like, you know, if you file a motion for extension of time, <laughs> it would be nice to get it ruled on before the, the day before your brief is due, right? Amen. So, <laughs> so I Amen. Those things. Yeah. No, it's, I always uh, laugh at, at, um, you know, it happens more with the district court, of course, when when they become judges on the district court from private practice and they forgot, hey, what was it like when you were a lawyer and and we needed some extensions or or some <laughs> of this stuff? It's it's OK to grant them even when you become a judge. Don't forget your roots. Right. Right. You yeah. know, um, so so you took over Judge Martin's seat and, you know, Judge Martin was such a wonderful judge and one of the great dissenters of the 11th Circuit. And before her was Judge Barquette. It's such a it's such a great seat that you have taken over. Um, did you know Judge Martin uh, at all before taking over that seat? I did just professionally uh, because of her service generally in the community here in Atlanta. Um, but she has become a very good, close friend. And that's one of the perks of this process is that I got a chance to expand my community of supporters. Yeah, no, she's she's terrific. And and um, I think she got a little frustrated on the court because she was always dissenting so much. Um, it, you know, I have seen sort of the rise in the 11th Circuit of concurrences, dissents. Um, and we'll talk about some of your opinions in a bit. But it is have you seen more and more of that concurrences and dissents? And, and if so, is that a good thing or a bad thing on, on our court? Well, I'm still doing a survey, a survey in terms of answering that question yeah. and 
terms of, you know, really getting a lay of the land, still even learning the jurisprudence. I, you know, practice in certain areas, but I, you know, I'm doing bankruptcy now, insurance, all of those kinds of things. And so I'm not sure how controversial those are. I think you're going to get a lot of majority and concurrences. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think now that I've been here for a couple of months, I'm digging deeper into the, the thornier issues. And I think once I get an opportunity to really, you know, observe and participate in that landscape, I'll have a better sense of the trend you just asked about. You know, it's interesting, you know, in interviewing previously, both um, Judge Pryor and Judge Rosenbaum, both of whom I think are are wonderful, they couldn't be more different. And, And I couldn't be more different than Judge Pryor, but we've become friends through this podcast and throughout, you know, through the process. It's interesting to me to think about collegiality on the court. Um, it's a very small court, the 11th Circuit, which, you know, is interesting to me. But as, as different as you all are and as differing, you know, opinions, is there collegiality on the court? Do you all get along or is it, is it you know, lots of fighting and backstabbing? I haven't had any fighting or backstabbing, so that has not been Amazing. my experience. Yeah. Um, and I think at the end of the day, so far, my my experience has been that people really care about the institution. They really care not just about the optics, but that it's sincere, because when it's sincere, then it's always that way, as opposed to only certain times. Um, So I have been very happy with the reception that I've gotten from no matter who got appointed by whom, that at the end of the day, the collegiality is because we are literally colleagues. And the only way that we can make this institution work is if we work together. Uh, towards the same goal. We don't have to end up, you know, obviously with the same outcome, but the the road that we're traveling is the same. So Judge, you know, when I interviewed Judge Rosenbaum, she talked about these dinners that Judge Pryor would put on where he would assign different people to seats. I don't know if you've been on the court long enough to have been to one of these dinners. Have have you been to one of Judge Pryor's dinner where, where he assigns where you're sitting at the dinner? Yes, I have. I have. I, that must be interesting to get to get your assigned seat from the chief, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the great thing, especially in Atlanta, with us all spread out, and then we've got a lot of senior judges. I got a chance to finally meet Judge Choflat, um, Judge Anderson. And so that's been wonderful is getting a chance to meet the senior judges who I think have the best job. Yeah, seriously. And they've been, I can't believe how long Judge Choflat has been on the court. It is remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if at 93 I'll be wanting <laughs> to do this, but we'll see. I think it speaks to the fact that you, you either do or you grow to love the job. He's still writing 93 page opinions, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so let me talk to you about oral argument. Um, you've been on some sittings now um, in your seven months. How do you prepare for oral argument? How do you get ready for it? It's been a work in progress. Um, you know, first, I have to say it's because I have a fabulous team of folks who, you know, took the job recognizing that I had never done this before, um, which requires a different skill set. So in terms of how I do it, it's because I have 
a really solid team who understands that, which means there's been a lot of research into how other judges prepare. You know, we caucus after each sitting to figure out how we should tweak things. And that includes my preparation. But I do get bench memos from, you know, my clerks, kind of, as you can imagine, summarizing the issues, making some recommendations. And then I read the briefs myself, sometimes not word for word. Some of it can be a little redundant, but I, and especially the reply brief, I focus a lot on uh, because that oftentimes narrows down the, the really difficult issues. Sure. Um, and then, you know, getting through as much of the record as possible, you know, through the sittings, I've been able to relax a little bit because it's a lot of information when you're when you've got 16 cases in four days. And so being not being as uncomfortable with asking, where is that in the record, <laughs> you know, or where is that in your brief? And so when I've been able to observe other judges do that with comfort, it's given me a little less stress. Any any tips for oral arguments for the advocates who come before you now that you've both been an advocate in the 11th Circuit and seeing it now on the judge's side, any tips for oral advocates before you? Yeah, well, I would say for the ones who are appointed, uh, you get a pass <laughs> right? <laughs> um, because you, you're already you're in a tough position. Right. And you're dealing with what you got. But I think for those who are not in that situation, you really have to read the room. Sometimes your argument just is not. Uh, persuading anyone. And the judges so far that I've had an opportunity to sit with really don't hide the ball on that. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, if your time is running up, again, you got to see, you get some judges who kind of are controlling, managing the situation who are a little more lenient with going over time, especially if they talked through most of yours. Um, but then you have others when it's silent, there's really nothing more <laughs> that you can say. And now you're going in the opposite direction. I'll tell you, I mean, you know, it's the worst when you're up there arguing and nobody's asking any questions. You want the questions. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you you know, you raise an interesting point about um, briefs and the record. There's so much for each particular case to, to review. And, you know, courts and the rules keep reducing the number of words you get for a brief. Um, we're down to, what, 13,500 for the initial brief or something like this, and obviously much less for the reply. And the lawyers always want to put more uh, words into the brief. Um, you know... Are, are there good tips for lawyers in writing it? Should we keep it shorter? Is that better? Or, or are we missing stuff? Are we letting stuff go when we keep it too short? You know, that I, I will still for now defer as a judgment call that the attorneys have to make. Um, I think you'll know whether or not it was a right decision if you get to oral argument. And for sure, once you get the opinion, then you'll know what the court really cared the most about. Um, but I do think that brevity is helpful because it helps, at least for me, focus. When there's a whole lot of stuff in there, and then at the end of the day, it's only one real issue. Do you have standing? <laughs> you right. know? And that's right. horrible, I would think. And I have had a case where I, I lost on standing. 
um, in this court, actually, <laughs> where you spend so much time on the merits and you didn't, they don't even address it because you didn't pass the first test or they, you know, the court thinks you didn't pass the first test. Brutal. Um, it is brutal. And so, but, you know, I think perhaps a lesson learned is a bit of overconfidence that you, you, you can't assume that you've, you know, properly checked each box. I'll tell you, you know, when when talking about whether you get oral argument or not, one of the, I think, some frustration that practitioners get in this court, in the 11th Circuit, as opposed to others, like, for example, in the Second Circuit, if you ask for oral argument, you get it. Sometimes in the 11th Circuit, you ask for oral argument and, you know, six months later, you get an opinion, no argument. Um, and, and I do think some practitioners feel a frustration with that. You know, if if there's a request for oral argument, why not grant it? So, can can you explain, you know, do, have you developed a philosophy yet on whether um, you grant oral argument, when you grant it, and so on? I don't have one right now. I think where I've been focusing more is the petition for rehearing and petition for rehearing on bonk. And I do think that that is an important stage for people to take a little bit more advantage of and that, you know, the court takes seriously as well. Um, but in terms of whether or not to grant oral argument, I do, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the cases where oral argument was denied is because otherwise you'd have someone standing in front of you for 15 minutes talking at you with no questions. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a good point. I mean, <laughs> what good is oral argument if 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 the judges aren't interested in it? Um, right. You know, it, you raise an interesting point about the en banc review and, and, and rehearing review. I used to give um, your chief judge prior a hard time because the only time uh, for many years that en banc review was granted was when prosecutors lost um, in, in the panel. You know, uh, they always would get en banc review, but the criminal defense lawyers, we we would never get it. So I gave him a hard time. And he has shown me that in recent years, more and more, there are some en banc cases where the defense loses. So, you know, I, I think it's an important point you raise that defense lawyers on the criminal defense side should be trying to push for en banc review more, especially after some of these long trials on these fraud cases where there are some unique theories of prosecution. Exactly. Yeah. Again, I'm, you know, just starting my own statistical analysis, but that's where the evidence so far is leading me. So when you're writing an opinion, Judge, um, are there any, you know, judges that you've looked to for inspiration, writing style? Are you developing your own style? Who, who do you look up to as a as a judge for, for brief writing? So I'm developing that too, you know? I mean, um, right now, I think you, you shouldn't expect to see any 93-page opinion <laughs> yeah. from me. Um, I try to practice my rule of brevity as well. Um, but you know, it's interesting. I've had two sittings at least so far with Chief uh, Judge Pryor. And so his writing is the one that I'm becoming the most familiar with right now. And I like it. He's pretty straightforward, cuts to the chase. Um, and even if you don't agree with his interpretation and application, there's no confusion as to what the interpretation and application are. Um, so he, again, one, he's the chief judge. And then two, just by the fact that I've had more, like I said, exposure to his style. 
he's really a gifted writer um, and and a persuasive writer. Even when I don't agree with him, I get annoyed because it's persuasive. Um, but you know, Judge Rosenbaum has a very different writing style than than Chief uh, Judge Pryor, as, as do some of the other judges. You're seeing lots more, especially from Judge Rosenbaum. You know, introductions with analogies or stories. Um, in the, a couple of opinions that you've written so far on the court, we haven't seen that. Um, is that you know something that's good for for judges to do, or or it doesn't really matter? Each judge is going to have their own style about writing with stories and analogies and those kinds of things. I think the latter. You know, I mean, I think when you when you point to those things, they're not necessarily nuances because you have a lot of people with that style, but there's they're specific to the judge. And so I'm being trying my best to be mindful of what to lift from others that matches who I am. Because otherwise, you know, if I started like that, I sound like Judge Rosenbaum. It's amazing. <laughs> um, but I'm not Judge Rosenbaum, you know, so I need, and that's where I am in my evolution, figuring out what is my voice. How do I want to sound? What do I want to get across and, and how? I love it. Um you know another another big problem I think with our with our system, especially in the criminal justice system, is that trials have really plummeted. We used to have so many more trials. Um, you know there aren't matlocks anymore because there aren't enough trials to go around. And so you know we're seeing less than three percent of federal criminal cases going to trial. Um, part of the issue, and I've talked about this with some of your colleagues before, is that when a criminal defendant loses and tries to appeal, even when they show all of these errors, a lot of times we hear, well, it was just harmless. And, and that is another such a frustrating part of being a criminal defense practitioner is, you know, you show, hey, this evidence shouldn't have come in or this, you know, so-called confession shouldn't have come in. And then we hear that's true, but but it's harmless. Um have you had any of those cases come before you yet uh, uh, on your sittings, the criminal defense side, where there's errors that have been discussed, but but they end up being harmless or you haven't had to confront that yet? No, I have. And I would say a, a broader response is really wrestling with the standards of review and recognizing that, yes, we are an appellate court of review, but sometimes that review is very limited. And that harmless error standard you just identified is an example of that. Um, and, you know, I have heard your comments about this issue and I, and I understand it. I mean, how can something that was wrong not be harmless? But you know, and usually in those appeals, they're not bringing, for, you know, things that you think would you would agree are harmless. Right. Like a date change or an hour right. change or something like that. Um, so I don't have a, an answer in terms of. Well, I guess my answer is yes, I have been confronting some of those cases. So it will be we're waiting to see how you're going to deal with them. We're on we're on the edge of our seat because we're hoping that there's going to be a breath of fresh air on the court. So let me ask you this. When you were when you were an advocate judge, um, some of your cases were so high profile and there were lots of amicus briefs filed for and against the position you were taking. Um, and of course, when we're advocates, when we can get some amicus briefs on our side, we think this is terrific. Um, do those briefs make an impact on the court or or are they not such a big deal as as we advocates think they are so i can only speak for myself and the answer is yes 
um, especially when you're talking about one or two that are consolidated on behalf of a number of groups, then it becomes even volume wise, easier to read and digest. But for those cases where you have 10 amicus briefs, that is not just to be honest, as manageable, at least for me right now. And, you know, having been an advocate, you know, there's advocacy within advocacy, right? So you've got the lawyers that, that you know, if the goal is to make sure that the court hears other voices, then there's some organizing and strategy around how, um, as amici, you're going to make that happen. And filing 10 to 15 separate briefs, I would argue is not the answer. Right, right. Too much. Um, let, let me ask you about your clerks. You've, you've spoken so highly about them. How do you, you know, you've done it for one term now. I don't know if you've, if you've hired clerks for your next, uh, for your next year, but how do you find the law clerks? What are you looking for in your law clerks? Justice Scalia always talked about having, you know, uh, one liberal law clerk to sort of be the voice against him and his, his conservative law clerks. Are you looking for different voices? What are you looking for? Yeah, you know, I decided that I was going to only hire year by year right now because because I'm new to the bench and to this title that my needs would probably change each year, at least for the next five years. So the first round were folks who had all clerked in the district court and I wanted a range of professional experience. So I actually do have someone who's a federal public defender on my team. I also have someone who's interested in government, uh, prosecutorial type work, um, you know, someone who came from the bankruptcy court. I didn't, like I said earlier, I don't know anything about bankruptcy or I didn't. You would be um, both. So <laughs> so that's what I needed this time around. I think what I hope is that, you know, this next cycle, I'll be able to really wrestle with the actual law more. You know, this has just been about treading water, honestly, making sure I don't get too far behind with my docket, that I'm providing a lot of enough substance, but I don't think, you know, it's as robust right now as I would hope it'll become. So yeah, difference in terms of probably some of the, the research skills, um, familiarity with writing at the appellate level, those kinds of things. Well, you know, you say that that you're just treading water, but I will say you've already cranked out three really important opinions. And um, in the, in the you know, honor of, of uh, Judge Martin and Judge Barquette, they were dissent, a concur, you know, in two concurrences, and and um, I just want to talk to you briefly about them because I, I just thought they were terrific. The first one, um, the Nelson case, um, which discussed qualified immunity, and, and Chief Judge Pryor wrote uh, the opinion allowing the case to go forward against the jail, which you don't see all that often in the Eleventh Circuit. Uh, you know, uh, where the Eleventh Circuit is allowing. Uh, the case to go forward, and, and it, it involved a black man killing a white man in the jail, and, and the argument was that the jail didn't protect him enough. And, you know, the 11th Circuit so often finds qualified immunity, and and you wrote um, a concurrence about how this standard should really apply in all cases. And, and um, I thought it was a really important decision, especially because qualified immunity is so hot right now. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I think that's one of the examples where as I grapple more with qualified immunity and how it applies in so many contexts, I, you know, I look forward to kind of seeing where that discussion will go. 
Um, but yeah, it was kind of one of those cases where it, it's easier just to sign on to the majority because you can scratch that case off your list. And it was an example of when I really had to um, lean into taking your time. You know, I again, I understand how important it is for litigants to hear quickly back from the court, but sometimes it does take time to be able to, um, you know, identify, contemplate, address kind of the universe of harms or benefits. And I was hoping in that concurrence, um, the benefit, which is now you have a broader application. Well, let me just read a little bit from it because you're being too humble. And I, I just want to read a little bit from the concurrence because I thought it was so powerful. You say the majority's decision cements the legal principle that incarcerated individuals may bring a race-based failure to protect claim even on a record as bare bones, again, as to that motivation as Nelson's estate presented in this case. To clarify, the law that this circuit has now clearly established is this, quote, prison officials have a duty under the 14th Amendment to take reasonable action to protect prisoners from violence at the hands of other prisoners when officials have a reasonable belief that another inmate might have racial animus and thus is dangerous even when that inmate is housed with others of different races and ethnicities for several days without incident. I just think that was so important. And, and it drew, interestingly enough, a separate concurrence by Pryor and Karn. So Pryor writes the majority, but then felt obligated uh, and joined by Judge Carnes to write a concurrence responding to your powerful concurrence. Yes. Um, well, one, that's a mouthful. So now, of course, my own self-critical analysis is I, I could have shortened that or I could have <laughs> put a period or a semicolon in there. So like that's an example of something I'm going to work on. Um, but yeah, I think that was interesting for me in terms of the back and forth and call and response um, experience that I'm looking forward. I imagine I'll have many more of those. Yes. And, and you know, there's two other um, opinions from that sitting. I'll just mention um, one is a dissent from you in, in the land case, another qualified immunity case where uh, someone was arrested on a false affidavit and stuck in custody for six months. Um, apparently, qualified immunity in that case seems pretty outrageous and you dissented. And, and there's so many. Th th this issue is going to get to the Supreme Court sooner or later, because, uh, you know, it, to give qualified immunity where somebody sits in prison for six months without on a false affidavit just seems wild. It does. And that's why I thought that that situation was especially outrageous. And perhaps having worked with individuals who were in pretrial detention only to have the prison or jail door open and told, you know, sorry, that's, some, that's not enough. You know, I mean, and I think I put in that, um, said, you know, he lost his job. There are a lot of collateral consequences. So I think that there should, someone should be held to account for the full, you know, scope of harm that's created in those situations. I think your dissent's ultimately going to carry the day in the Supreme Court. We just got to find the case that they'll take because they haven't really heard this issue uh, in, in, in enough detail. So hope, well, fingers crossed that the court takes one of these qualified immunity cases soon. The, the last one that I'll mention, and this is way outside of my area of expertise, this retaliation case, Daphne Berry versus Crestwood. Um, you, you wrote an interesting concurrence about how the law of retaliation in the 11th Circuit, there's all these different tests, but 
they really should be one test and and the court should should do away with all these different um um tests i thought i thought it was really interesting as especially from someone who doesn't understand that area of the law yeah i think one of the things i'm wrestling with now is what is a what is purely a statement of a right as opposed to a real right you know what you can actually act upon with clarity and some certainty as to what the result will be and that's what i was trying to suss out a little bit with the you know mcdonald douglas test which is the traditional um, test used in these kinds of cases with this convincing mosaic theory. We're not even sure, is it a test? Is it a framework? Um, and so this idea that let's not fool people into believing they have a path to success if they really don't. So Judge, we've talked a lot about the law. We've talked about confirmation clerks. But what, what we haven't talked about is is what you like to do in your off time. I know you're drinking from a, a fire hose right now and trying to keep your head above water. But what are some of your hobbies? What do you like to do in your personal time? Tell us a little about you before we 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 finish this interview. Thanks. Yeah, well, so I have to I have another job, which is being a parent, um, which I guess you shouldn't call a job because no, it's, but it is. Never, it's a lot of work. Let me say that it's a lot yes. of work. Um, so, you know, this is my, my girls and my daughters are older now. So it's kind of like the last stretch. I'm learning, as people say, you never stop parenting, which I'm learning now that this is, this is never going to end. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. I got three daughters of my own, so I, yeah. I know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really where my, my extra time is going. In part, it feels good because we made it as a team this far. They were part of this whole process. They've been to many a community meeting, um, you know, with me and, you know, different weekend events and stuff. So I feel that um, this is the part of, this is my part of the partnership, you know, to really be there and see them through to their next stage. I love that, Judge. And it was so lovely to have you on. You're such a, you can tell just right away, such a nice, humble, good person. And so it was such a pleasure to meet with you and speak with you. And thank you so much for doing this podcast. I know how busy you are. So we appreciate you. And I, and, and I really want to thank you. Well, thank you, David. Again, like Judge um, Martin, you know, getting a chance to meet you and learn more about your background and the amazing work that you're doing. And for you to provide this platform, you know, where we can share comfortably the challenges and exciting parts of the job. So thank you again for including me in this program. Keep up the fight, Judge. Will do, you too, bye-bye. I told you all, just a nice, humble, genuine person. I really wanna thank Judge Abudu for coming on the show, for for being uh, with us on this podcast. I know how busy she is as our newest 11th Circuit Judge. Soon she won't be the newest. Judge Wilson just announced that he's taking senior status uh, no later than the end of the year. So she'll move up in seniority and we'll have a new 11th Circuit Judge. Hopefully that judge will join us on For the Defense as well. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll have more bonus episodes coming up for you soon. Thank you again, Judge Abudu.